Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the radio ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for the series. I have with me today Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian, and our friend Amy Russell. Amy was saved out of the New Age movement, and she is joining us to tell us some of the things that we may not be aware of and share how these things are infiltrating the church. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hi, thank you. All right. So in the last few episodes, two things that have come up frequently have been yoga and meditation. And there seems to be this thinking out there that yoga is just stretching and relaxation. And meditation is just this thinking about the things of God or just having a calm mind. Can you define for us what yoga and meditation really are? Let's start with yoga. Yoga in ancient Indian Sanskrit language means union or yoke. And the goal of yoga is self-realization. So we turn our consciousness inward to unite with the true self, the higher self. Yeah, we've run into that true self idea when we were doing this enneagram. And then yoga and meditation is some of the prescribed spiritual practices to help you recover your true self. And become a very popular Christian program. Had different homeschool groups email this week where they're pushing Enneagram for Christian homeschoolers. So that's really interesting then to hear you say that the goal of yoga actually is to achieve this true self. Yeah, the goal is to turn within because everything is within us. So we turn within to find our true self, which is our God consciousness. So we want to unite and yoke with the higher self to draw us toward enlightenment. So based on that definition, can there be yoga that is just stretching? Yoga is totally different. It's you can, of course, just do a regular workout where it's just stretching in a workout form is completely fine. If you're going to practice yoga, it's introduced as being just stretching and calming when in fact it's an ancient Hindu practice. You cannot separate the Hindu aspect from the yoga practice, the two are entwined. And so the philosophies and practices of yoga stem directly from the occult, but yoga is made to look appealing to Westerners because it's a subtle form of occult. It doesn't carry with it the stigma of like a sinister, menacing occultic system. So Westerners have more willingly embraced it. Western yoga has become a launching pad for occultism. So if you're going to delve into yoga, you're delving into a Hindu practice. If you're just going to work out and stretch, that's a completely different format. And most yoga practitioners in the West would say that they don't subscribe to all the mystical philosophies of yoga. They just practice it in the context of it being a good workout. And the supernatural high that one cultivates through yoga is unlike any other. So they like that because it's more intense than an endorphin high from um, a regular workout. However, it also dissipates much more rapidly. But whether one intends it to be or not, it is a mystical practice. It's a gateway practice into mystical spirituality. Yoga in in its essence is designed to honor Hindu deities. It's a religious Hindu practice. So adding a Christian label to it does not eliminate its occult Hindu origin and bedrock. 
Okay, uh, Amy, does that mean if people are going to sign up for yoga, they're agreeing that there's some true self to be found, and they agree that this whole process is heading toward the true self? In India and in these other countries where yoga is looked upon as a Hindu practice, then that's what they're learning and that's what they're practicing. But in the West, people are just mostly doing it, saying that they're just signing up because it's a great workout, which it is. So in the West, it's not considered to be an occultic mystical practice. Do you think people are in danger who think it's just a workout and they get signed up for the yoga somewhere? Are they in danger of getting sucked into the occult part of it? Yeah, it's a gateway into the occult. It's a Hindu practice in a subtle form, but it's a gateway into spiritual mysticism because each pose represents a Hindu god. So even if you intend to or not, you're honoring the Hindu deities and you're allowing that energy to move into your body. And that's what it's designed to do. So then each of the poses then is inherently spiritual. It's the poses themselves that are inherently spiritual. And then with the the sequencing of it, you're drawing that mystical occult energy into yourself. It's meant to open us up to allow the mystical spiritual entities to enter us. That's what it's meant to do, whether one intends it to or not. So then when you're talking about the difference between the yoga high and the endorphin high of a regular workout, is that because it's inherently spiritual? Is that something... It's a supernatural high. It's a supernatural high and it come, it's a lot more intense than a regular endorphin high, but it also dissipates more rapidly. So sometimes I would do two yoga classes a day because I wanted to continue to cultivate that high. Wow. I have had some different conversations with women who profess to be Christians that are very involved in yoga. And in trying to discuss it with them, I had mentioned, well, I don't have an issue with stretching. Can't you just stretch? And what you said now really shines some light on that conversation because the response was, I don't get the relaxation and I don't get the feeling that I get from just stretching that I do with yoga. She knew there was a difference between stretching and yoga, but she kept wanting to switch those terms. And so that kind of makes that, it makes a lot more sense. You had said in your brief, and I like this quote, so I want to make sure we get it included here. Westerners have perilously mistaken the practices of yoga and meditation as simply breathing, stretching, calming, and relaxation exercises, when in reality, these practices are a gateway into Eastern mysticism and a cult. Mm -hmm. That is something that we need to be so aware of, because everywhere we turn now, it's yoga. It's in churches, it's in schools, it's at the YMCA, wherever you go, you're going to find yoga. And it's important to know these origins and purposes of it. Mm -hmm. How does yoga give you this, this high? You know, it's one of Satan's hooks that he uses to draw us in because of course he's not going to use something overtly occult because most people would be repelled by that. So he's, he's uses these subtle forms. And when you open yourself up and you're doing like these different asanas, which is, which are poses for Sam in Sanskrit asana means pose. 
So when you're doing the different asanas, you're drawing that energy in, that occultic energy in. And so it creates this like tingly high throughout the practice. And at the end, we would lay in Shavasana, which is Sanskrit for corpse pose. So you're dying to your old self and you're allowing your new self to come through. And so every day we must die to our old self and our new self then is rejuvenated and we're brought back up out of Shavasana into our new day. And so while you're laying in Shavasana at the end of your practice, you're allowing that occultic energy to run through your body because you've opened yourself up to the spiritual beings that can then enter. You've mentioned several times, Amy, about self. And so I took some notes as you were talking. They were talking about self-realization, true self, and then some kind of God consciousness. And then there was terminology about the old self and the new self, which is really ironic because the Bible talks about that in Mm -hmm. terms of Christ and the cross and regeneration. So it's like they have a whole fake version. Yes. uh, That replaces the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that right when I started practicing yoga, that was the first thing I noticed. And that is what drew me in because I thought, well, this is truth because it's the same idea that I learned from in the Bible. But that's what Satan does. He takes a little truth and then twists it. And there's a redefining of terms and really making yourself your own Christ. You can do this on your own. It represents the same things, but the terms are different. Mm -hmm. And the significance is different. It's that subtle redefining and shifting of categories. Yes, because we're, we're not looking to Christ we're going within to find our own Christ consciousness. So So, is this Christ consciousness universal? In other words, the whole human race is somehow connected to Christ, but the problem is we just don't know it? Right. The problem is we're just not looking within ourselves. We're looking outside of ourselves for something else to save us when we can all save ourselves if we just tune inward to the Christ within, the Christ consciousness. Wow. I actually told a friend of mine in Los Angeles that I had become a Christian. I said, I went, I gave my life back to Jesus. I'm a Christian. And she goes, oh, that's amazing. You found your Christ consciousness. And right away, she clicked right into the Christ consciousness. I'm like, no, I'm a Christian. Christ is not within me. He's separate from me. So really, it goes back. We talked about this last time. It goes back to there is a transcendent creator who is above and beyond the entire creation who Mm -hmm. made all things out of nothing. And the creation is not the creator. And if we look inside ourselves, we won't find God. We'll find a lost sinner if we don't know Christ. Yeah. So I was mentioning like how Satan will use these terminologies to kind of hook us thinking that, Well, a lot of it is true, so it must all be true. And he turns everything upside down. He inverts the truth. Just like the word atonement, it's Jesus' shed blood for the remission of our sins. It states that man is separate from God. And in the New Age, they 
dissect the word to say at one mint all is one yeah the, I heard it. the mystics teach all is one so theism is a personal god separate from his creation and panentheism is god exists within us as our true self as well as a pervasive presence in all creation and then pantheism is god as an impersonal substance that instills all creation so according to panentheism and pantheism everything is god in expression and so a fundamental change is not needed we just need an awareness of what is already there so we become aware of christ where the bible when it talks about the old self and the new self is talking to death to our sinful rebellion against god that is leading toward judgment now let me read a scripture that where the Bible talks about the old and new self, okay? That's mm -hmm. in Romans 6, 6. It says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. And then it says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die. So the old self is us living alienated from God, living in rebellion, living in sin, doing whatever we want to do, going our own way, and facing judgment. When we repent and come to Jesus Christ, and our sins are forgiven, we die to that old life of being alienated, from the true creator God and the old self. That's what it means for the old self to die. We're dying from sin. Sin is lawlessness. Okay. And mm -hmm. Christ has been raised from the dead and we come alive and we know that we're joined to Christ and that we too will be raised to eternal life. So they're taking the old self, new self, which is in the Bible and redefining every single term. And yep. now, Amy, did they ever talk about sin or any kind of moral law of God or anything like that in, in the religion you were in? No, sin is not spoken of at all. The evil presence is not spoken of at all. We just need to heighten our vibration so that we don't have anything negative happen to us. So there's no good or evil. It's all just energy. Everything is just energy. Oh. And it just needs to then be transmuted back into the universe and to then be recycled. So it's all just recycled energy. There's no good or evil. They don't use the terminology of sin. They don't use any terminology to do with good or evil, because then they would have to explain how sin comes about. And we can't, of course, explain that if we don't admit that we're sinners. Wow. Right. So it's, they're talking about the same kind of stuff, old self, new self, but it's a, it's a perverted religion that's totally opposite of the Bible. It's to yeah, it's totally opposite. And it just goes back to, to karma and the need to purge our impurities through the laws of karma. Yeah, I remember you talking about karma. Now, I've never totally understood 
maybe they just don't question it. But if there's no definition of sin, and if there's no transcendent moral lawgiver, God, we don't have a definition of evil. So why do you have to have karma and, and go back over and over and over trying to get better when they can't define what bad is and they can't define what good is? So what is it you're trying to get away from? Yeah, where does it all come from? If there's no evil in the world, if Satan doesn't exist and we are not sinners, then where does it all come from? Yeah, why do we have to worry about karma? And yeah, it's like, it's put into the context of learning lessons so that we can elevate into the next life. But as you mentioned before, we don't have any context from the past life to know what we did wrong, to know what we need to improve so that we don't do it again. We don't remember our past lives. Okay. So what am I here to learn if I don't remember what I did? It's very interesting. Uh, you know, hearing your story, Amy, it makes me wonder because logically it really doesn't add up because if we have to get over some kind of bad, then there must be good and evil. And there's got to be a definition of sin. So we know what, what good is and what bad is and some way to deal with it. But they don't want to talk about that. So I wonder yeah. if it isn't about just trying to find those good vibrations. Yeah, we're just trying to move into the higher vibrations. And so they, so to bring us to that point, they have to come up with this practice of meditation to elevate our consciousness and this practice of yoga to bring us into a higher place that we access through ourselves, through turning inward more and more. Like you need to turn more and more inward to access the, these good vibrations. And so throughout the yoga practice, in each class, as you're practicing these asanas, I remember I could feel things not entering completely, but just like the tingling sensation of feeling these beings around me coming closer into my, what they would term energy field. And then, as I mentioned at the end, when we would be in Shavasana, I could feel things running up and down my body because you're laying there in a trance-like state and you've emptied your mind. So everything is empty and you're laying there and you can feel all of these beings. I could feel them practically touching me because wow. so, I was so open to receiving them. And so when you come out of it, I would sit up and we would do another meditation and chanting and I could feel their presence, which would give me that really elevated high that of course I don't get when I'm just doing a regular workout. Like if I'm doing a spin class or if I'm swimming laps, you don't get that tingly high sensation because you're not accessing the occultic realm. Wow. So then we've got yoga, which is inherently spiritual. The poses themselves are designed to honor Hindu deities combined with meditation. That's going to liberate your mind from rational thinking so that we can access basically the spirit world, the world of the occult. And once we're open to that, that's where you get the experience. That's where you get the high that people are looking for. Mm -hmm. But it's spiritual. It's not... Supernatural. It's, yeah. Yep. So 
I've heard different people who have come out of the new age talk about how the chakra system plays into that. Can you explain that for us? What is a chakra and how does that relate to what we're discussing? Yeah, um, chakras are psychic energy centers located within our body. They're located throughout our entire body, but the ones that are primarily spoken of are the ones that are up the spine through the top of the head, through the crown chakra. And they represent and correspond with the physical region of that energetic field. And so you start with the root chakra at the bottom and you want the chakras to spin clockwise. And as they spin clockwise, they function to draw, their function is to draw in energy. And this keeps the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical balance in our bodies. And so when they're blocked, they'll either be stagnant or they'll be spinning counterclockwise, which creates dis-ease in the body, which creates illness, instability. And so the idea is to unblock, reactivate, and rebalance the chakras. And this is supposed to bring improved health and heightened consciousness. And so through the yoga practice, when we're aligning with our higher self, the chakras are supposed to all start spinning. And as they spin, they draw an energy, which brings healing to each part of our body. So it goes from the, the root chakra, which is our foundation. And then the second one is the self. The third chakra represents digestion and absorption. And then of course the heart is the fourth chakra, the heart center. That's what we focus on in yoga mostly. And then the fifth is the throat. The sixth is the authority and power. And then the seventh is self-liberation. So when you go through all of them and you move up to self-liberation and you open the crown chakra, then everything can enter. So then yoga is the practice needed to align the chakra system. Mm-hmm. Yoga is one practice to align the chakra system. Okay. What is there others? Yeah. The, the transpersonal energy healing I was doing, it will also align the chakras. Meditation is said to supposed to align the chakras. So everything is trying to bring us into balance so that we flow freely so that we release blocks. So everything we do, we have to release blocks, but it's like a daily practice. It's something that we have to do every day because then I'll wake up the next morning and I'll feel all sluggish again. It's like, oh, I must be blocked. I better go to yoga. I better do my meditation so I can unblock. So it's this constant works-based idea. Wow. And it would seem like it would just be endless. It is. Yeah, it is endless. It feels endless. Is there some at the onset when you first hear about this? Is there any kind of scientific evidence or anything that would cause somebody to believe that all this stuff actually exists? That's what I was going to revisit because you had mentioned in the past session that we did about science about scientific evidence and study and how we just blindly walk toward these beliefs without having any proof of any kind that that has scientific background. And I was going to ask you, Bob, if I may, the term metaphysical, 
is supposed to be the science dealing with the unknown, like the unknown powers, the, the spiritual evolution of the soul. So do you consider metaphysics an actual science or a scientific study? Or is it merely a concept derived from mystical forces that give us no cognitive framework from which to research? Yeah. Because where do we research? Well, you can't. You can't apply science. Science is based on the human ability to use reason to function in the concrete world that God put us in. Okay? And moral law is based on communication, based on categories that are observable. If we go all the way back to real physics, the real world, you go back even to the Garden of Eden before there was sin, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, they're created in God's image. And he, and he said, you can eat of all of the trees of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Well, see, that requires observable, objective categories to even avoid dying. It says that you eat, you'll die. So you have to use reason to see what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then everything else. It's just observable categories. Mm -hmm. Now, after the fall, there's delusion and deception and sin that comes into the world. They get kicked out of the garden, but we still need to use categories because it said by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to eat. So you got to know the difference between seed that you can plant in the ground that's going to be edible and thistles. You have to pull out the thistles, cultivate the food. You have to be able to know categories using our physical senses. Now, metaphysics means beside or beyond physics. When I studied physics at Iowa State University, we were basing everything on repeatable functions and processes and the laws of thermodynamics, uh, the conservation of mass, conservation of energy. And you knew exactly what you're going to get, and you're going to get it every single time. All right. And metaphysics is the world of the spirits or the non-tangible world. And when somebody's trying to say there's all these laws, these chakras and karma, and they get this real sophisticated system, but it's all based on. Unknown. Uh, yeah. Fantasy. Phantom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So met metaphysics isn't physics. Yes. And it's not yeah. provable, it's not repeatable, and it's not objective. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. says science of the unknown. How can it be a science if it's unknown? Well, that's a good point. By definition, it's not a science. That's like right. somebody said, it's the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so much of it, just kind of by coincidence, I've been reading Aristotle's metaphysics. And here you have a, a truly brilliant man who then branches out into metaphysics, and it's all based on philosophy. And Aristotle was a king of rhetoric. He was a good he was a good speaker, and he was very persuasive. 
but it's all nonsense and it's all based on conjecture and philosophy. None of it can actually be proven. You can't sit in your lab and do the same experiment and get the same results in the same environment every time. It's not science. It's philosophical. It's the, 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 it goes in the realm of, of meaning and uh, value and, and things like that. Now, I'm not saying there isn't anything valid, but what we believe as Christians is that things like duty, value, honor, what's honorable and what's shameful, the spiritual realm, which does exist, mm -hmm. and the moral law and all that, it isn't left up to just looking out into the cosmos for metaphysical impressions. It's based on God objectively and tangibly coming into his own creation and speaking real words with real meaning to people in a way that they can understand what God said. It's God condescending to speak to us. And so when uh, just last Sunday I preached on the burning bush where Yahweh comes and speaks to Moses, I am that I am. And there were objective promises. And we don't have to try to go into some realm where we're going to be deceived. We can know what God said. And so whatever metaphysics we're going to have has to be derived by what God said in the Bible that's absolutely cold, sober truth, as I say. For those of you who also follow the Gospel of Grace feed, he has been teaching through Acts in Sunday school, and it's now been the sermon series while we have Zoom church services. So Acts has been at the front of his mind. So can you share with us what you had mentioned about Paul and the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17? Yeah, it fits into our discussion about this basing everything on metaphysics without any objective way to know truth. So Paul is in Athens where the philosophers are gathered to discuss their different ideas, okay? And uh, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So verse 22 of Acts 17, here's people that have all kinds of religion, but they don't know anything that the true creator God actually said. That's why all right. they had is philosophy and metaphysics. They didn't have objective truth. Now, I'm going to go to verse 23. So while he was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. That's where we get our word agnostic, by the way, unknown. Therefore, what you worship, Paul says, in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And here's what Paul said to the people who had no objective religion, just the metaphysical, philosophical, and religious impressions, okay? Here's what he says. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Okay, let me stop right there. The big antidote to Eastern religion and a lot of the spiritual wickedness that's coming into our culture is a belief in a sovereign creator God. So Paul started with there is a creator who is transcendent to the creation, okay? 
So the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, in other words, God is not just limited to certain territories. Okay? He is the God of everything, heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So man can't determine what God has to do or what religion God has to conform to. He's transcendent. He tells us what we need. Okay, that's a big difference. Let me read on. Nor is he served by human hands as, just, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So God drew out the boundaries of where humans live on the earth. National boundaries are God's idea. We get that back from Genesis in the table of nations. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So God is omnipresent. They're groping around looking for philosophies and feelings and deities and statues and ideas and they don't actually know the very God who's right there if they only knew him. So that's what this Eastern religion is all about. And then it says, for in him we live and move and exist, even though, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Verse 29, being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice that Paul talks about the creator the omnipotence and omnipresence of God, the sovereignty of God. But then he also talked about having given proof to all people because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead objectively before witness, physically, not just metaphysically, physically. And he appeared to many witnesses. And then he talks about a future judgment grounded on whether, how we respond to Jesus Christ. So notice a biblical worldview, in a biblical worldview, history is linear. Mm -hmm. It starts with creation and it ends in judgment. Our knowledge about God is objective based on his self-revelation. It's not found by the conjecture and philosophies and religious musings of people groping around. Literally, that's what he's talking about. They're groping around. So, Amy, when you were hearing all the stuff about the chakras and the, the tingling and the feelings, and, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's powerful because there's kind of a demonic presence going on there, a, a, a real demonic presence, but it's not the true creator God. And so yeah. that's, I thought about that after our last session, that Acts 17 is just what we're talking about. It is. That's a great reference. Yeah, it's it's all subjective and fleeting. You can't hang on to the tingling feeling. 
you can't hang on to these heightened emotions. So every day we would get up and try and recreate them because we're going after the feelings which dissipate within moments. But, you know, on the subject of what is truth, so everything in New Age is experiential truth individualized. Experience is considered the higher authority. What is true for me may not be true for you. Accordingly, there is no absolute truth. Truth is then subjective. So it paints truth as whatever is right for me is my truth. That might not be your truth, but I can't say that's wrong. That's just not my truth. So you do your thing and I'll do mine. And this negates the teaching of the Bible. It dismisses biblical doctrine of redemption through the work of the cross, which is a finished work. We as believers are complete in him. If the truth is within, then whatever form it may render is okay. So following that philosophy, biblical truth is immaterial, as Jessica mentioned in the previous session, Galatians 2.21. If other ways are correct, Christ died in vain, rendering his shed blood unnecessary. And then also in that context, as I mentioned in the first segment, biblical truth is then said, that is what's said to be blasphemous. So then according to metaphysics and new age, biblical truth is blasphemous because Satan turns the truth upside down. So he takes a little truth and twists it. Mm -hmm. And then he can say the Bible is now blasphemy because you're not moving toward one world philosophy. You're not looking within to improve yourself so that we can all unite as one. You're looking to God outside of yourself, and that's the blasphemy. Yeah, it's wow. interesting how they go to that one world all the time. Yeah. And when Paul was on Mars Hill, he was saying that uh, God draws boundaries. Right, right. The boundaries. Yeah, yes. God draws boundaries, and we ought to respect them. And yes. the world is saying, no, no, there are no boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are just about out of time. So we will come back to yoga and chakras in the next episode. And we're going to talk a little bit about how this goes right back to the serpent in the garden and how the serpent ties right into this. So we hope you'll come back next week. We want to remind you that you can access this program and years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. And we want to encourage you all out there, as it says in Philippians 1.27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this has been Jessica Kramus. I've had Bob DeWay and Amy Russell with me, and we will see you next week. <laughs>